0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hello, it is Monday, March 4th. This is episode 27 with Lewis Logic, with your host. MC Lars on MC Lars podcast I wanted to shout out a podcast that I was recently on I've been since I started doing this podcast people have been asking me to guest on their podcast which is tight because I can promote their podcast they can promote mine it's like doing collabs on people's records so the podcast is called pop culturally deprived they did an episode on who framed Roger Rabbit the hosts are Mandy K and Matthew and they had heard my notes from Toontown EP so they asked me to be on the podcast and Mandy K had never seen who framed Roger Rabbit what I know I know it's true as a kid her mom was super strict so she wasn't allowed to watch it so she watched and gave her first impressions and I dropped mad trivia and it really it came out great so check it out it's episode 110 of the pop culturally deprived podcast and it was super fun to be on their podcast okay I wanted to start today's episode with a poem by Emily Dickinson, who we've talked about before and who is a a huge inspiration on me as a poet and as a writer for her meter, her slant rhymes, and it's poem 112. And as you know, Emily Dickinson didn't title her poem, so her poems are titled by the first line. Here we go. Success is counted sweetest by those who never succeed. To comprehend a nectar requires sorest need. Not one of all the purple host who took the flag today can tell the definition so clear of victory. As he defeated dying on whose forbidden ear, the distant strains of triumph burst agonized and clear. Ooh, Emily Dickinson. So that poem uses an example of what we call a metonymy. And I remember learning this in high school from David Miller, my English teacher. A metonymy is when you have something as a metaphor something small that represents something bigger, right? So for example, the metonymy in this song is the flag, because she's talking about how people who truly understand victory are the losers, the people who never achieve victory. He can hear on his ear, the distant strains of triumph, bursting agonized and clearly, which is a beautiful, beautiful phrase. So metonymy, the flag, right? And I've been thinking a lot about metonymy. And I think that in a career as an artist or a content creator, We are looking for these examples of metonymy that signify success. I'll explain. Back in the day, you know, success was kind of a binary thing. Either you had music in stores and you were performing or you're waiting for your opportunity for people to hear you. There wasn't a lot of gray area as to what success was. I mean, nowadays, you know, there are YouTube stars who make millions, who never tour. There are people who play huge shows like folk artists who don't get a lot of spotify streams so it's hard to quantify what success is and the reason i bring this up is when i was growing up in i grew up in oakland and then my dad got a job on the monterey peninsula so we moved two hours south to a kind of rural area of Northern California, the closest big record store was this store called Streetlight Records in Santa Cruz. And it's right down the street where I saw my first concert, Weird Al Yankovic, Alapalooza tour, 1993, what up? Streetlight Records had a huge, incredible indie hip hop section of CDs. And in high school and beyond, whenever I'd get to you know take my parents' car up to Santa Cruz and see concerts or just hang out, get away from the rural place I grew up, I love to look through the hip-hop section because the CDs were crazy. It was all independently released stuff with cool art, artists I'd never heard of. And that whole metonymy of success to me was, okay, if you have your CD in a store, in an indie record store, that is success, right? Remember, there was this dude named Necro who had crazy like, graphic art covers. Like, There was one of his uncle with a heroin needle about to shoot up, and the album was called I Need Drugs. And Necro had a bro- has a brother called Ill Bill. And What's Wrong With Bill had this crazy, like, gothic comic cover of this, like, demon guy with these girls around him on this cover. And they basically looked like heavy metal covers. And it was always, like, really intriguing to me, the art. And this was late 90s, early 2000s. And um, later, I would work with Ill Bill. He was friends with my friend Howie Abrams, who was on the podcast. We did a song on my album, The Graduate. And Bill would later do projects with Vinnie Paz from a group called Jedi Mind Tricks. They did a project called Heavy Metal Kings. And I think after Eminem blew up, there was this, after 8 Mile came out, there was this whole renaissance in indie rap with people like Jedi Mind Tricks, Nonfiction, which was ill Bill's group, Lewis Logic and the Demigods. There was this whole movement because it was kind of like after Nirvana. Drop, never mind. Everyone wanted to sign and promote the next grunge thing that would be huge. Everyone wanted to find the next Eminem. Everyone was speculating on what weird peregrination of hip hop would manifest this. And so I owe, you know, the start of my career to this interesting time in indie rap when being like a nerdy white kid, college kid rapping about English literature and nerdy stuff kind of made me different. And I remember. The day I walked into Streetlight Records and saw the laptop EP in the hip hop section, I was like, okay, I've achieved this metonymy. Um, I'd been seeing the flag of victory from for years, right? Other artists having their CD in there. So that's what's up. So you can't really, and I, you know, but I always was like, okay, well, what's next? Like, how do, I, how do I headline the catalyst? How do I do this? Like, once you achieve victorious things I found through my career, I always wanted to find the next thing. And these days... I'm very happy with where I am as an artist. Being able to tour, being able to release music on Patreon, being able to do YouTube videos when I feel like it. Just I feel really, really blessed and having an audience like you, awesome people who listen to the podcast, and having guests who are willing to talk to me for hours about their perspective on life and art and everything. So this week, we've got Lewis Logic, who I heard about years ago. Adam Warrock had played me the demigods, and I saw Lewis Logic at South by Southwest because he toured with Mega Rand. And he kind of later in his career went away from rapping to do more singing and piano playing. He's a very talented, credible musician. And he talks about what it's like to finally feel your feelings and how chasing the metonymy of success can be this narcotic, can be this thing that helps you numb out to your feelings and makes you feel invincible. But eventually that, you know, like the star in Super Mario Brothers, it wears off. So... Lewis Logic was a dude who I mentioned earlier about this whole deluge of the indie label success in the mid 2000s. He was part of that. He sold a lot of records. He toured a lot and he was, you know, a very successful artist in that era. He still is very successful, but these days he sells real estate in New York and he's happily married. He's just really cool guy. So this is my interview with my man, Lewis Logic. We're going to end this podcast with this song, Factotum, which is based on a Bukowski book that was later made into a Matt Dillon movie. I really recommend it. Um, but it's you know it's a, it's an ironic not ironic it's kind of a dark comically dark look at alcoholism before we get in this interview of course I want to thank my Patreon supporters as always some of my older supporters I want to thank Super Hobbit aka Alex Raphael and Naomi thank you so much my new supporters Cameron James and Leslie and uh, this is my interview with Lewis Logic on the MC Lars podcast <music> All right. I got a quote. Well, it's the clown prince of the rhyming with a buzz like a beehive. Oh, boy. Lewis Logic. What's up, man? How you doing today, Lars? <laughs> Thank you for coming through and being on the podcast. My pleasure. We just jumped right into it. Like Basically, you just got here and sat down, and that, that's cool, I think. I'm just such a busy guy. I have to do it that way. You are very busy, and you
1: have- That was a lie, (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Let me just come right out of the gate with honesty and say that that is untrue. I don't have anything else to do today of import. Well, I'll go home. My wife is going to ask me to help her manage a mound of paperwork and bills and stuff that uh, I can't see her past. So I'm not really in a grand rush to get back there and do that. Okay, they're not my bills. It's not my paperwork. That sounds unfair. She's my <laughs> wife. I guess they are mine. Never mind. I better hurry up.
0: <laughs> well, we, you know, we have a lot to cover because you have had a long, fascinating career, and you've switched gears so effortlessly. It seems for me, someone who's known your work before I met you, and known you in real life. Like, what three years? I first officially met you.
1: Yeah, it's probably that long ago at least three years at least three yeah well i'm glad it looks that way from the outside (laughs) effortless effortless i mean uh it's not i painfully learned to play piano in front of a public audience which i don't recommend you should do it when you're six (laughs) not 32 and maybe not when you have a public rap career where people are expecting you to release new music to stay on tour, promoting stuff. I stopped making records for seven years to learn to play piano. Wow. And I was still touring, but largely on old material and somewhat sporadically. And that was the height of my career. So it was an odd time to to make that choice. It was right before my sophomore album where my longtime producer... Um, DJ and partner, J.J. Brown, and I decided to retitle Lewis Logic material to be Lewis Logic and J.J. Brown, which I thought was a much more accurate description of what was happening on the records. And right before that record came out, I started taking piano like a year before.
0: You'd been singing, though. hooks yes, and
1: Yes, I'd experimented with singing. I think the first time that happened was on the cinematic album. I did some rapper sing songy singing for the chorus of the song street smarts some for the song mischievous and those first bits were inspired by feedback i got from jj in early sessions i was so bent on being taken seriously as a rapper because i grew up in a suburban neighborhood Mm. i was adopted by a white family when i was a baby even though i'm brown and i got licensed to use the n-word if i so desire i wanted to belong and to fit in and it seemed to me that the way to do that would be to cultivate a street sound with my voice with the way I spoke with the way I dressed with my personality and my affect and I thought there was a black way to be and to act because I was a suburban white kid for all intents and purposes even though I was a brown kid so In my early sessions with JJ, he would try to get me to loosen up. And the only way that I knew to do that was to drink a six-pack. And I really restrained myself and my personality on my earliest recordings because I wanted to sound convincing. Mm. And I didn't really see a place in rap music for someone who had a bubbly, cartoonish personality who is, by and large, a silly person who liked to get drunk and make a fool of himself. So JJ had me start doing ad lib tracks behind my main vocals. And I started getting a little more playful in the ad libs. And he really liked that. He was like, this is the first time I've heard your personality come out on the records. Mm. And this is what differentiates a real artist from just some guy who raps. If you want to have a following, if you want people to really connect with your music, you have to share something of yourself with them. It Mm. can't just be about your selfish pursuit of demonstrating to everybody how clever you are with punchlines and rhyme schemes. Fans are not... Well, actually, in indie rap, this is not true at all. But (laughs) fans are not rappers. They want to be entertained. Entertain them. Share something of yourself. Because that's the kind of people that a listener falls in love with. That's why people love Tupac so much. You don't get it because you think his cadences are really simple and his rhyme structures are not complex. You don't like what he talks about. But he's all personality. Mm -hmm. And people fell in love with him for that. He had a cult of personality built around him. And it made a lasting impression on me. And so I tried to start letting myself go a little more in the ad-lib sections of songs. And I think the first time that I really had fun with it was on this single called Guilty as Charged that happened before my first full-length album. And J.J. would use that as a reference point and say, let's get you back to where you were then. Mm -hmm. And so when I wrote the first song with J.J. for the cinematic album, because the first six songs I wrote for it were actually not with J.J. They were with random other producers that I had collaborated with. Um, And I had a six-song demo in progress. Well, a five-song demo. Um, Factotum, that was actually the first song that JJ and I did together. Okay. Uh, And that was still back in the time when I didn't really want to let a lot of my personality out on the records. I was being very straight ahead, very serious in my delivery and my performance of the songs.
0: That song, though, is... The sample is, like, very original, and it's a beautiful...
1: I think that... It's from a Bob James record. Yeah. Um, Are you
0: proud of that track?
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I... I look at it now, I'm in recovery now, and I've been sober for, I'm creeping up on 18 months, and I look at that song as an early record of, I mean, it is a record, but I mean, (laughs) like a historical record of at least what I thought my life
0: was like as... An active drinker. A lot of your battle rhymes are around how much you could drink. One of your, my favorite lines: "Ripping mics, oh mix like a pub in Dublin, Ireland." That's ill.
1: I don't really <laughs> believe there are coincidences anymore. Mics, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. someone just texted me about that exact line a couple of days ago. That's crazy. This dude out in L.A., uh, Jay Walker, who writes about rap lyrics. He's published a few books. He analyzes and catalogs. Uh, how rhymes are written and the history of their development and how MCs have certain goals in mind or certain habits as to how they write songs yeah and he he's yeah he's he's sort of like a a rhyme mechanic of sorts and he goes around just trying to decipher whatever's going on in the creative process behind the way someone who is very ly- lyrics driven writes their rhymes. Hmm. So he's actually written a lot about my stuff because of all the use of multi-syllabic structure and storytelling. Yeah. And he, he loved my early punchline stuff too. And that was one of his favorites. And so he just texted it to me like two days ago. That's great. And my reaction was yeesh <laughs> primarily because not everything that came from the mind of a, a 24, 25-year-old active alcoholic aged very well. <laughs> and I, I, I read, I'm, not, I'm not like a PC police guy. I actually, I'm pretty tired of that kind of stuff. I think it's really worked against people who share my social and political beliefs. But I do think that some of the stuff that I wrote is... is uh, I don't know if I would say it's insensitive. I think it's just downright silly. <laughs> but but I guess it was kind of clever. There were there
0: were that's a good punchline though. It's it was a multi
1: entend punchline. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's pretty clever. It's also very corny.
0: When I was in college, you know, I always was inspired by the Philadelphia music scene, like the punk rock, like Dead Milkman, Adam's Package. And then when I'd play Jedi Mind Tricks and Demigods on the radio in college. And Oh, cool. Thank you. You were part of this incredible moment in hip hop.
1: Yeah, I actually was there for some very cool stuff. And on the subject of that particular scene of music in Philly, there's like this uh, suburban uh subversive culture thing happening uh, kids that were just kind of frustrated uh who it wasn't all just angst some of it was humor and stuff too so you had groups like dead Milkmen. i actually just had filipino dinner with joe jack talcum <laughs> like three weeks ago and met him for the first time that's dope. uh yeah the lead vocalist on punk rock girl among who oth- i'm interviewing in a few weeks. great hits yeah, yeah for this th- he's yeah. awesome he's that's such cool. a kooky little guy <laughs> um very sweet person how did you get in touch with him just he was on tour with a friend of mine cool z yeah yeah and uh i was on the west coast because my wife is a cinematographer and she had a film in the la film festival oh cool so we were out there and i knew that cool z was on tour on the west coast and so i reached out to him and was like hey i see you got an off day and then a show in la what are you doing on that off day and then we met up and had dinner it was awesome that's dope. Joe Jack was kind of a childhood hero of mine. Yeah, man. And so it was really wild just sitting there having dinner with him and talking.
0: So would you say they were an influence on you? Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
1: Uh, when I was like 13, 14 years old, I was a big, big fan. And I remember the Beelzebub album being very controversial for its time. His mm. parents would find their kids listening to it and be like, Beelzebub? Doesn't that mean Satan? Right. And so they got the impression that it was devil worship music, which I mean... Dead milkmen, right? Yeah, I mean, that stuff was so silly and lighthearted. Yeah. What passed for controversial and offensive in the late 80s and early 90s is blush-worthy level silly by comparison to what is offensive today. (laughs) Uh, But I don't think people at that time knew that. Uh, But I, I do think that you hit on something by pointing out the very special strange subculture time period that i got to be a part of in the birth years of my rap career getting to make friends with and hang out with jedi mind tricks as they were rising to popularity i moved to philadelphia after college i spent a year at uh, penn state's main campus were you just kind of hanging out him? no I'm, okay. I'm older than he is so okay. I, yeah i wasn't there for that yeah um but I hung out for like an extra year, and then I moved to Philly the following year after I graduated to get yeah. closer to Vinny from Jedi Mind Tricks, who I had met after he headlined a monthly open mic night uh, at Bob Hito's store, Footwork. And I had approached him after his set and said, wow, that was amazing. And it was. I was so blown away. I, I couldn't perform live at the time. Yeah. And so I was just so impressed at his stage presence and his booming voice And I had made friends with a mutual friend who told me that he was Vinny's buddy. And I was a major Jedi mind tricks fan. Mm -hmm. Um, This was before the violent by design album. So the psychosocial album had come out and the Amber probe EP had been out. And I had the psychosocial album on vinyl and I, I approached Vinny and said, Oh, we got a mutual friend. And he said, who? And I said, El Fudge. And he was like, what? Fudge is my boy. And then we drank all night, Mm. 40s out of paper bags in Rittenhouse Square and talked until the sun came up. And he gave me his beeper number. What year is
0: this, probably?
1: That was 97, I think. Wow. The same year, I actually met LP for the first time and started to become friendly with him. So yeah, I was there for a really special time period in development. uh, The resurgence, we should say, of indie rap because... The first rap records that got really popular were indie, and then Majors kind of caught on to them. We're like, oh, there's money here and started putting that stuff out. Um, So, this was like a a second boom of indie rap. And I ended up moving to Philly just so that I could hang out with Vinnie more and develop what I saw as a path to me having an, an indie rap career. And he came to my house. I had a little one-bedroom apartment on the corner of 37th and Powelton, in Powelton Village near Drexel University. And he would sit on my couch probably four or five nights a week at drinking a, a 40 out of a paper bag. And I used to say, why do you do that, man? We're indoors. What's with the paper bag? Oh, okay, There's yeah. no one here to catch you. Right, You're right. in my apartment. And he's like, oh, no, what's a lady without a skirt? <laughs> is what he told me. I always appreciated that. Uh, But Vinny is the one who actually introduced me to Bukowski, who became a huge influence on Mm. my songwriting, and uh, whose book Factotum is the namesake for which my most popular drinking song was named. I'm just lucky that I got to be a part of all that. And I maintained a friendship with Vinny for a very long time after uh, we're still casual friends. If we ran into each other, we'd be pretty excited. And if I were still the drinking type, there would be plenty of that. Um, mm. Yeah, we, we had a good friendship. It, it was a moment in time. And much like a lot of my other rap relationships, they happened by way of a, a, an X-shaped intersection of sorts. And so once the, the cross part happened, we just drifted further and further apart from each other, musically and idealistically, and Vinny and I recognize that. And so we we grew apart. I, I don't share the same kind of personal politics mm-hmm. and career trajectory that Vinny does. I, I've always been about staying outside of my comfort zone since JJ impressed it upon me that it was important to really experiment and free yourself so that you weren't self-conscious when you would make records. It came to be that for me... The guiding ethos behind how art should be made was never stay in your comfort zone. Always be exploring. Try to push your boundaries and see where it takes you. Don't ever make the same record twice. Mm. And I made new heroes. Instead of looking up to DJ Premier and Eminem and MF Doom and Company Flow, although those guys were pretty experimental, I looked up to Beck and Mike Patton. And any artist that I saw as a rule breaker, uh Frank Zappa, who who tried to make every different style of music possible. Um, those are the people that I came to admire. And I wanted to do that with my rap music. Rap is not a very forgiving genre of music. It they not everybody yeah. wanted to go with me on my surf rock mixed with rap adventure or Lewis tries to make an indie rock rap record. If I got compared to someone like Todd Rundgren while making rap records, that was enough of a reward. Mm. Even though I saw my audience uh, wax and wane over all of my musical adventures.
0: Yeah, have you ever read, do you know J-Zone's book? I'm in one of the chapters. He saw artists like you pushing boundaries, getting love and attention, and he kind of realized rap had moved on.
1: I, I mean, I got that from what he said, at least yeah. in part. I think a lot of what Zone was trying to express, and I, I can't speak directly for him, but we are pretty close friends and mm. we, we still keep in pretty close touch, was uh, we, we were all experiencing, those of us who were there for that golden era boom of indie rap, this strange ennui because we saw our careers peak and then shrink and we saw the, the listenership and the audience for indie rap dwindle. And the means by which you would make a living off of indie rap shrink. And you had to have a hand in so many more different pots in order to make the same kind of money. And it was becoming more difficult for people to make this a full-time thing. And I think between that and just the same sort of desire to explore and to grow, to not stay the same artist over the course of your career, Zone found himself seeking new territory and and watched his listenership change and and shrink uh, we we actually experienced pretty similar things mm. there are a lot of people who did what we did uh tone death from q and five is another guy who went through the same kind of growing pains publicly and lost audience members because he sang too much on the songs or things got too electronic and synth oriented uh Hmm. it's a fickle little audience yeah the indie rap world they wanted a very specific thing out of me but i was never going to be satisfied re-recording the song "Fact Totem" for decades i I couldn't live that way and i don't say this to suggest that artists i saw as having made that choice did something wrong not if it made you happy Mm -hmm. when i look from the outside at the way jedi mind tricks career unfolded to me, it looks like they've been making the same record for decades, but I doubt Vinny feels that way about it. Mm. He probably feels like he's experienced an immense amount of growth, and I wouldn't really be able to argue otherwise Yeah, because I'm not inside of his experience. Yeah, My, my outside subjective opinion of what happened isn't necessarily reflective of how it was for him to be the front guy of that group. Um, but he seems really happy. I I don't say these things to suggest that I knew the right way and that was the wrong way. It was just a different way. And, And artists who shared my vision for how you should conduct yourself artistically paid a price for it. And the price that we paid was we saw our popularity and our fan base shrink. We watched them reel in frustration as we made changes because they felt we had betrayed them and that we left them behind.
0: But some of that betrayal, like your song, The Ugly Truth, right? That is very relevant for our current situation. Yeah, it really
1: is, sadly.
0: And it's like, when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, did this come out a month ago? That song I like because I feel like you're kind of, in my opinion, saying some of the older battle rhymes and some of the less, I don't know how to describe it, some of the less progressive lyrics, you're kind of saying this is not how you should see people.
1: I think by the time the cinematic album happened, even though I was still making a lot of shock-oriented, sophomoric humor rap, things had taken a darker turn, and it was a foreshadowing of a direction that you saw play itself out about as fully as it could have from my first album to my third and last Lewis Logic album, Look on the Blight Side. And what was happening was I was growing up. I was getting older. It felt a little silly to me to say lines like ripping M.I.C.'s like a pub in Dublin, Ireland. I would think back on that and go, come on, man. Not everything has to be like a a corny setup and punchline joke. Maybe I could talk about my feelings a little bit. Mm. Now, I, I don't say that to suggest that those records aren't as good or important. Only that 38-year-old Louis couldn't really make the same record as 28 year old Lewis because I was an older guy and I had lived more. I wanted to share what I had experienced in that decade Mm -hmm. with my listeners. And I hoped that they would come with me. I was told a long time ago, actually when I was making demo songs for the cinematic album by the first hipster I ever met a graduate of the Rhode Island school of design or RISD as a lot of people know it, a famous art school, that produced a lot of really amazing musicians, including members of TV on the radio and, uh,
0: talking heads, right? talking heads. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, so he said to me two things, one, stop listening to rap music. You need to put your Eminem and your MF doom and what have you away, because you're starting to sound like the people that you listen to. Draw your inspiration from things outside your own medium. Every artist is a thief but it's about how well you hide your references. Mm. And I thought that was really good advice. So I started listening to music that had little to do with what I was making. And I basically went back to what I listened to as a child, like classic rock and singer-songwriters and punk and metal. And I kind of stayed there. I never really got out of that. (laughs) Um, More so like indie rock and singer-songwriters now, but nevertheless, not rap music. So he told me that, and then... He also really tried to impress upon me just uh, an idea about how you can make money doing anything. And if you want to be an artist, like an actual artist, then it can't just be about reproducing the same kind of art all the time. Mm. If you, if it's just about making money for you, you, you could paint houses. You could be an accountant. There's any number of things that you could do to make money. But if you want to make art, your mission should always be to push yourself artistically. And I really took those things to heart. He made me think that the goal behind making my records was to show growth. And I, I really took that very seriously. That's cool. I, yeah, and and I had missions in mind. Maybe at the time I thought they were altruistic missions. I thought, I'm going to make rap music, more musical, air quotes, uh, by learning to play an instrument and to read sheet music and understanding music theory. And I'm going to bring more musicality, air quotes again, into my music, thinking I will inspire other people. And one day for someone to be an MC, it'll just be a normal expectation that every MC plays at least one instrument and is fluent in the construction of westernized music as we know it. Now, there probably was some part of me that had an altruistic purpose in mind. I had spent a lot of time in green rooms that were shared, confronting rock bands who, upon finding out that I was a rapper, looked down on me and made me feel as though I were lesser or not worthy of considering myself a proper musician because I, I was a rapper. Mm. Rappers don't know anything about how to write music, play music. They just rap on beats. Right. You're not a real musician. You're a rapper. And I didn't like that. And, and I think that attitude even showed itself in institutional treatment of rap music. The first year that the rap category was introduced in the Grammys, it wasn't broadcast in the TV Mm. Ceremony of the Grammys and Jay Z, who won that Grammy, refused to go to the event. Wow. Because they wouldn't broadcast the rap category. Now that's like the most watched category. That's why everyone turns the Grammys on. Totally. I saw myself on some level as a soldier in the battle to legitimize rap music. And later, what I learned, probably in part because of recovery, you do a lot of self examination because of therapy, things like that, is that while there may have been an altruistic component to my little journey uh, that said, I'm going to fix hip-hop for everybody, what was really going on there is I wanted credit for that. I wanted people to say, Lewis is the guy that made hip-hop into music.
0: Mm, it was geez. always music. That's such a heavy, uh that's heavy, man, right? It, it's a big ego It's beautiful, <laughs> but it's so factotum making a, a song about a Bukowski reference. Rappers weren't doing that often back in the day, right? Like, No,
1: I guess that was kind of unusual. Yeah. But, I mean, it's not as though I made a series of songs in that way. I've spent some time in your own catalog and uh, listening to other rappers who often get lumped into the nerdcore umbrella uh, and who make it their craft to summarize and explore other kinds of work, TV shows, books, what have you, in their records. I I never really revisited that Mm. after the Factotum song, per se. Yeah. I guess I could say that more I wrote a song about drinking and then was introduced to the book Factotum by Vinny. And he suggested that I title my drinking song Factotum. And then I read the book and said, you're right, I should call my song Factotum. (laughs) So it it was reverse engineered. Yeah. I, I didn't really write the song about the book. I wrote the song and then found out that it, Venn diagram wise, it, there almost weren't two circles between right. the book and the song. And I thought, Vinny's right. I should just call this song Factotum. It's a cool reference. And and then and this is the last thing that I was taught by that, that hipster kid. His name was Max, um, who went to RISD. He said that, what most great artists are doing is turning people on to the things that turn them on. Mm. And so you become a spokesperson for what you think is cool. Mm. And I thought singer songwriters and classic rock and being well read were cool. And so that's what I was trying to do with my records. I wanted to make that cool in rap music, but not because even though I told myself this, not because I was, a valiant defender of hip hop. The real reason was I wanted credit for those things and I wanted it to elevate my stature and my ego. Look what Lewis did for rap music. I, I must've really thought a lot about myself
0: back then. Well, do you think that's the product of growing up in West Babylon, right? Like, that is that where you're from? Yeah. I talked to Brendan from WIDAS about this. He's a friend of mine and they're from Northport. How Long Island is kind of like this Terminus point in that culture comes there, and and a lot of people make art, but but a lot of great artists from from Long Island have this impetus to try to perfect, change, and influence culture, and that comes from like the proximity to New York, but also like the isolation of being in the suburbs. That's kind of like what we talk about. Sure, yeah. What do you think?
1: I, I don't <laughs> think that that's an outrageous theory yeah. by any stretch. What I hear when you say that is Long Island is fucking boring. <laughs> <laughs> which is true and so yeah. what else will you do <laughs> with your craft but obsess and uh endeavor to make an epic of everything you do artistically
0: and be original though because it's that the suburbs influenced by this great cultural area where you're sure. not copying I mean, yeah, yeah
1: tell it to aesop rock yeah. <laughs> another right. long islander who's really really carved out mm. his own way I also think it has a lot to do with just personality, and for mm. me, I've always been a very fastidious person, detail-oriented, uh, consumed by the idea that I could perfect something if I devoted enough time to it, if I put enough effort into it. If I was stubborn and willful enough, I could perfect something, mm. but, but never being satisfied. Isn't that, isn't that the curse? Of the perfectionist attitude.
0: You know, before I was sober, I would would try to be, try to kill that need for perfection with other things, you know? Oh, yeah. And I found that post having given that stuff up, I enjoy making art more and I enjoy everything else in my life more. And I'm not so haunted by that thing that I'm trying to silence all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know.
1: I hear that, man. (laughs) I mean, I can't say that I didn't use in the same way, but maybe not for the same specific reasons. I always told myself in my drinking and using life that I was enhancing the regular life experience, not that I was trying to escape anything. Mm. And I, even in sobriety and in working a program of recovery, I still generally tell myself that escape wasn't my real goal so much as uh, enhancement was. But what I find in that is this lingering sense that i in and of myself and my life in and of itself what it was was not enough as though i had come out of the gate short and Mm. i required more in order to feel complete i think that was what was really going on with me and my using and if i drank Over my records and my art, it would be mainly to quiet my disappointment in my ability to satisfy my perfectionist tendencies. It didn't matter how much I put into writing a song. It could never really reach the finish line for me emotionally. Mm. I always thought I came close, but I didn't quite get it. I spent three months writing a song on the Misery Loves Comedy album. And it was a a really detailed crime and relationship saga called A Perfect Circle that told a story about a telemarketer who fell in love with someone from a distance. And it it took me three months to write this near seven-minute song. And when it was finally over and the record came out and people reacted to it, I still felt like I didn't get it, like I didn't make it there. Hmm. Everybody else was like, "Wow, how did you do that?" It was like a movie in a song. Yeah, right. And to me, I was like, "Yeah, a shitty movie." Like I, I didn't actually get there. I didn't achieve the goal, and that was my opinion about a lot of what I did. I, I mean, I don't want to sound. I've read in interviews before with people who who really shit talk their past work. I don't want to sound unappreciative about what i was able to accomplish i don't think my records are trash maybe you think they are listener whoever you are that's okay you're entitled to your opinion um i don't think that about my old material what i think is it's the best that i was capable of at that time because if i can't say that i did achieve the goal what i can say is i died on that hill trying
0: Mm. You don't want to just repeat what you do that works. And I feel like with Nerdcore, no disrespect to any, you know, no disrespect, but, like, it's a lot of let's do this video game song. Let's do this and that. And that's I was talking to Megaran about this. You mean it's formulaic? Yeah, it's formulaic and that you don't want to just do the formula just to, like, try to, like, create content that you don't actually, like, believe in from your heart, you know? And that's like something that sounds like you've consciously tried to avoid. and
1: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if there were a way to summarize what I was up to as an artist, that would be it right there. You just said it. It's a very conscientious attempt to avoid making things that weren't purely artistically driven as an exploration of what was possible in my art. That was what I was trying to do. I don't yeah. know that it worked. But like I said earlier when I was talking about Jedi Mind Tricks' career and the way they've shaped their catalog, I don't know that my way is the right way. Mm-hmm. And I don't pretend to believe that I was right and they were wrong. It's just a different way. Um, for me, yeah. that couldn't feel right. But for other people, it's it is the right way. I, I have a hard time wrapping my head around how someone makes records like that
0: yeah but that's
1: just like my internal dialogue and judgment if i see a nerdcore artist whose whole thing is describing a tv show that's really popular to painstaking frustrating detail <laughs> i might say quietly in my head what is the matter with you make up your own art right that's so weird yeah but that's not only insensitive but it also ignores just how fucking difficult it is to do that to translate anything into a rap song it's hard it's like a puzzle
0: yeah and i think the ones that succeed make that fandom something personal i don't
1: know what somebody's connection is yeah to i don't know what the fuck do people write about
0: <laughs> rick and morty it, is big right yeah
1: now. parks and rec people yeah. write about like, yeah I don't know what their connection is to that stuff. I never even watched those shows, so I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah,
0: right. But if someone did a Bukowski EP, you might be like, oh. Yeah. You well, yeah. To, yeah.
1: There you go. Yeah. You, you said it, Lars. The truth of the matter is I'm an idealist and a snob until you're talking about the shit that I like. <laughs> <laughs> then all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, bring on that that 10-song discography of Bukowski-inspired rap, Double, rap the records. Double box
0: set, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the song... Off the Chrome. Can we talk about that for a second? Oh, that's
1: a freestyle song.
0: That, did you freestyled that?
1: Yeah, that was the whole idea of it. That's why it was called Off oh, the okay. Chrome. Those guys loved plays on words. Yeah. And so, yeah, like Off the Chrome, Off the Dome. Yeah. And their whole thing. I, I never understood how this happened to indie rap because I thought this was the one place that was safe from that. But Chrome meaning like guns. Right. All, all of a sudden, a lot of those indie rap guys I used to run around with started to include more of a street influence in their records. Mm -hmm. When they first started making stuff, it was aliens and like conspiracy theories and what have you. And then they all made this transition into being like street indie rappers and talking about guns and violence. Um, Off the Chrome was meant to be a freestyle song. And what we did is we just tracked like three or four passes of freestyles to the beat for each MC, and then cut them together into one cleaner freestyle. That's very
0: impressive, man.
1: I I used to be a really (laughs) good freestyler. I I actually don't (laughs) think that song is a good showing of what I was capable of. At one time, I was a force to be reckoned with freestyle-wise. I could freestyle multi-rhymes pretty well. You would have a hard time figuring out what my crutch was because every freestyler has a crutch. Mm -hmm. They might say the phrase, know what I'm saying, or come on or something like that to fill space while while they're thinking up the next thing and it was difficult to tell what my crutches were because i was good at freestyling i wasn't necessarily good at battling Uh because i wasn't good at battling that's what i mean to suggest there but i was really good at freestyling uh and i could do it in a way that would make people think it was
0: written and which that song is a great example of.
1: I think that song is a medium level example (laughs) of that, but I'm not trying to do the thing I just said. I don't like when other artists do where they're like, oh, my old record sucked. My new record's amazing. I think my old records were as good as they could have been for that time period. That freestyle, however, I don't think falls under that particular category in, in terms of reflection. I look back on that and think, I should have stayed there longer and done more of them. I'm a better freestyler than that song indicated. But it's always different when the little red record light is on. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, when you're rehearsing an instrument, if you're preparing to play a recital or a live show, you're amazing when you're practicing by yourself. Sit somebody down in front of you, it's a whole other ball mm. game. And freestyling with the record button on is a lot different than freestyling on the fly in front of an audience or you know, on your own in the car when you're driving.
0: Yeah. And that song, though, speaking of battling, it's like you're battling this fan who has a, a certain notion of what good indie rap is, right? Like it's Annoying Kid. Yeah, totally. It, yeah. yeah,
1: there's there's a part of the song that's, yeah, sure, kid, I'll give you what you want. But there's also a, while I do that, I'm going to take some jabs at <laughs> you.
0: It's a clever concept.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, honestly, that song is one of the most referenced songs for me from audiences and they never talk about my rhymes they always talk about the crazed fan character played by magic most okay (laughs) uh so kids would come up to me for for decades well decade and a half anyway of me out there on the road touring and say like uh kick a freestyle and do their impression of the deranged fan and i'd be like oh my god (laughs) how is this the thing that lingered and all my records all these years of records it's magic most deranged fan character that i probably hear the most about
0: by parroting it they're like well i'm not i'm talking to you i i appreciate your art but i'm not this crazy guy
1: kick a freestyle that is a really funny way to try to convince me that you're not the deranged (laughs) fan to come up and do an impression of the deranged (laughs) fan but yeah you you're probably right about that that's cool i do think that is the the intention there that they're like i'm not like that guy yeah
0: for sure your song with Adam Warrock and Friend-A-Lot, uh, Salieri.
1: Oh, yeah, That's, yeah. That
0: song is awesome. And I like how you sing the hook, right? Yes. Those guys
1: are friends. And they yeah, yeah. They were like, hey, you sing on your records. I really like your choruses. Do you think you could sing this chorus for me? And I said, oh, hell yeah. People used to hit me up for rap guest appearances all the time. Yeah. And the beginning of my career, I was the biggest collabo whore in indie rap. and I was on everybody's records and everybody was on my records. And then when I started to get high-minded about art, I said, no more. And I wouldn't take money for collaborations. I wouldn't, nothing. Um, For a long time, I put a a complete embargo on collaborating. Uh, And then when I decided to start doing it again, in part out of necessity, um, because it was becoming more and more difficult to earn a living as an indie rapper, I had to set some rules for myself. And ultimately, those rules evolved to the point that I was like, no more versus I will do a chorus for hire. I will sing. I will play piano. But I'm not... Don't write to me and ask me to do a rap verse. Mm. Uh, My inbox is still full of messages from people. There's a French guy who will not stop writing to me. For a rap verse? uh, Yeah, about me doing a rap verse. Is there a
0: language barrier, you think?
1: No. Yeah. No. Uh, Je ne faisais plus uh, rap, la musique rap ou hip hop. There's just... No motivation left in me to write rap music. I didn't retire because I don't believe in retirement, and I don't know how I'll feel in five years, in two years. My running joke is that the follow-up to The Look on the Blightside album is going to come out on my 50th birthday. Who knows? <laughs> that might actually happen. Yeah, You still got like six years and change left <laughs> to find out whether or not that's true. Uh, it would be pretty funny, though, if I did do that. Um, and I could, I could see myself doing that more for the humor of it than an attempt to revive my career.
0: But that's young in rap, right? Like is it the genre is relatively new. So like, how old is Keras? He's, is he in his fifties?
1: Yeah, definitely. I
0: feel like he's still, you know, putting stuff out. Wow, that's yeah, great.
1: definitely. I mean, yeah. I don't know if it's great. I don't listen to it, <laughs> but he's out there. He's doing shit. He's yeah. touring. He's making records. Good for him. I, I don't think that there is an age limit on making rap records by any stretch uh-huh. there used to be rules about hip-hop yeah you used to not be like you and be <laughs> able to be like you and make rap records it was That's only true. for brown people and, and and that changed and and good on hip-hop for for that changing because i always thought that was one of the things that delegitimized it as a music mm. that people thought it was so specific to an ethnic group a racial group a socio-economic demographic what other music is like that you can't play jazz because you're from Finland. Like, I, who makes such rules? Right, right. In other right. music, it's can you do it? Are you good at it? Uh-huh. Actually, that's not even that important anymore. But um, can you market yourself? Yeah. yeah. Can you get some eyeballs and ears onto yeah. on what you're up to? Those are really the only questions. Uh, so I don't really think there's an age limit for rap music. It definitely does sort of seem like a, a young person's game. Yeah. But I could say that about entertainment in general
0: i bring up that song because i love the hook but also adam warrock brought me to see you at south by southwest a few years ago that's why i first saw you live and oh yeah you you played upstairs i forget the venue but at
1: 512 i think
0: yeah and it was uh on e 6th uh, yeah and it was it, like right on the main drag i think you were playing piano and singing right yeah definitely you had the song you introduced it about your parents and how you're like why can't people stick together oh
1: yeah and i played melodica it's like i'd
0: heard all your other stuff i'm like this is lewis logic like i was but i was also like it inspired me man to like want to push boundaries musically with what i was doing but also
1: holy shit my yeah. big plan worked on one guy <laughs> that's what's up hey man <laughs> if, if there's just one on whom it worked, you know, I I, I can't take credit for Jay Zone deciding to become a drummer who far exceeded what I did with piano. Um, but I do think that I was an influence mm-hmm. and I remember him calling me on his, or I called him to, on his birthday to check in on him and he had been in kind of a low place emotionally because of the, the death of his career as Jay Zone. Mm. um and he talked about his book and you know the book in a sense was a bit of a eulogy for his his rap career um and i told him because he was working at a high school on long island doing data entry Mm. uh, and he was miserable and i was like look man i know they're giving you shit about having an afro i know They want you to wear a tie, and that's not really your bag. And um, This is really beating you to the ground. You feel like you're not an art person anymore. You're just like a working stiff. Firstly, that's just a mean thing that people tell themselves about. Someone that has an honorable, totally legit, hard-earned living. There's no such thing as a working stiff to me. If you're working, then you're doing something that I think is admirable. Uh, But secondly... You'll always be an art person. Part of the reason why you don't like to wear ties and you got this big afro and you don't fit in where you are is because that's just who you are. It's intrinsic to who you are. And so even though you're not Captain Backslap anymore and you're not putting on your grandmother's old fur coat (laughs) and jumping around in a headband on a stage and basketball sneakers doing rap songs, it doesn't mean that you're not an art person anymore, that you're not still a musician. You just have to find what kind of art and music moves you now because it's changed hmm. find your place and you'll feel better about where you are and he ended up really going headlong into the drumming thing that was not my suggestion i was just trying to suggest that his artistic spirit will speak to him and he will find where he belongs and he did and now that dude is quite an accomplished session drummer hmm. and a part of several bands the key, it, really, yeah, it means a yeah. lot to me that you saw what i was doing and were inspired by the idea that you can add more to what you're doing with your music. You can explore your art to the furthest reaches that it will take you, and that's okay. Not
0: everybody will go with you, necessarily,
1: but it's okay to indulge in that, I think.
0: I'm sure when you first started expressing yourself musically, it was that excitement of what possibilities are in this couplet. If you lose that joy in that like zen spontaneous spirit then it's like why even do it i mean right that's, that's right. why
1: i was i always bring up that example like i mean if it's just about money then do something else yeah you, you totally. know like yeah. install floors or work at a gas station you can do anything to earn money but if you want to make art then be about art and, and art is to me it's, it's exploration and expression and just, letting it take you to where it's going to take you. And I I really came to feel like the only way that I could be happy artistically was to stop actively making rap records because I couldn't really get any closer while still making rap records to what I really wanted to be doing. And in the end, my heart said, I want to make the kind of music that I actually listen to. Mm. Singer-songwriter stuff and... I want to learn to play piano and I want to learn to sing. And I've been doing that for years now. And I do still make music. I shared something in December of 2017, a little six song EP that was, uh, you know, kind of hipstery, electronic singer songwriter pop that had like some hip hop influence with Minneapolis, now Brooklyn Transplant, uh, rapper producer Isid
0: oh yeah yeah and
1: uh we called it toy friend and i just i didn't really share it very on a very widespread level some part of me seems to have not survived uh, the very quiet gentle goodbye i said to my lewis logic career Mm. um like i said i i didn't retire there's still lewis logic out there i may make a lewis logic record again one day who knows But I did kind of say goodbye to it, at least for now. And
0: how did that feel?
1: Well, I do think that had a lot to do with some of my worst drinking, which I didn't know at the time. Um, It was painful, you know. I had Mm. to I had to mourn saying goodbye to that career because it was my whole life, from the time I was nineteen or so to the time I was thirty eight. Wow. Yeah, that's a long time, man.
0: That's half your life yeah Yeah. definitely yeah
1: so it was really painful uh but when i did that i kind of lost the will to climb by any means to the highest vantage point set my hair on fire and scream check me out look at what i'm doing yeah by which i mean promote my work (laughs) Uh I i just don't have it in me i can't bring myself to get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and sit there all day trying to convince people to pay attention to my music. I just don't have it. It's exhausting. It It is exhausting. And it's, it can be really heartbreaking. Oh no, 59 people put a little heart thing next to my song. Does that mean I'm not cool anymore?
0: Or does that mean that those 59 people were super engaged and now they want to all do creative art?
1: Who knows what the fuck it means? Yeah, that's
0: the vacuum of it, right? Yeah,
1: and whatever reaction I did get was never good enough. Mm. And I got tired of feeling that disappointment and that fear. And I just, I don't know if it'll ever come back to me. Unfortunately, I think if you want to have a public music career these days, you need to be okay with that. You need to make peace with the idea that you're going to have to participate in a social media self-promotion game. And I don't have it in me to do that right now. I do have yeah. it in me to make more music, and I've been doing that. and I'm very, very proud of the stuff I'm making. I do think people would like it a lot if they heard it. Probably not old school Lewis Logic fans necessarily, but there is an audience for what I'm making now, probably even a bigger one. Unfortunately, really nerdy, hyper-detailed indie rap is not hugely popular um anywhere right um but the kind of stuff that i make now is uh
0: would you tour with toy friend i don't know yeah
1: i don't know i told myself and i shouldn't do this i made a hard and fast rule and i started doing this toy friend stuff i'm never touring again the way i was doing at the end of my rap career Mm. sleeping on people's floors and futons and stuff to save money so i can actually take home a little bit of whatever guarantees i was getting or door deals i had yeah um I said to myself, dude, you're in your 40s. You can't be sleeping on people's floors and living like a 23 year old, fresh out of college, punk rock kid. You're too old for that shit. So, unless Toy Friend gets a licensing deal for a song in a fucking car commercial or something, and I magically wake up with 500 fans in every city. Mm hmm. There won't be a toy friend tour. I have since amended my thinking on that subject to include the possibility that as long as my other sources of income were treating me well, I could and would go out on the road for a terrible door deals, (laughs) 30 people a night tour. But think of it just as a fun thing, like a buddy road trip. Yeah,
0: Um. Just the yeah. two of you guys, maybe. Uh,
1: you know, or, you know, with some other acts. Yeah. Okay. And not care about what happens financially yeah. because I'm not re- relying on it for money. I'm doing it because I love to play live and I want to do it in front of people. Um, I- I'm probably more hmm. in that place emotionally now. But in order to actually partake of that attitude uh, and actually get out there and tour, I would have to be actively. Rehearsing and playing at least locally to cultivate a show that I could take on the road. And I can't say with any truth that I'm doing that currently. Right now, Toy Friend appears to be on a little bit of a a break. Um, Not for any specific reason. There's a lot going on in my life right now. Anybody who has any idea who I am who might be listening to this might be surprised to know that I'm going to be a dad in January. Ooh.
0: Yeah. Congrats, yes, man. Thanks. That's, that's awesome. For the
1: first time. Um, and if you do know... Breaking any, news. Yeah. If, <laughs> if you do know anything about my, my origin story, my bio for my music career, having been adopted by a white family when I was a little boy, I've actually never met a blood relative before. So when this baby arrives... This is going to be the first time that I've ever laid eyes on somebody who has my blood in them. So it's a pretty potent experience that I'm having currently. And I I don't really have a lot left for other things because of the emotional space that that occupies. Um, between my program of recovery, the need to earn a living, and that particular adventure most of my energy is ending up there. Mm. Um, There is one other thing going on in my life. That's also kind of put a small pause on the toy friend thing, at least from my side of it. I cannot speak for my bandmate. That would be rude. Mm. Uh, But I got a phone call a few weeks ago, uh, about a month ago when I was in LA for the film festival with my wife and This number kept calling me over and over again. And I thought, what the fuck, man? I haven't put any real estate ads up. Why is this guy calling me over and over again? Whoever Mm. this is, leave a message so I can know what this mystery is about. Yeah. Or I thought, how could this be a bill collector? I don't have any debt currently. Another real reward of recovery. (laughs) I ended up letting it go to voicemail over and over again. And then ultimately, probably the third or fourth time that this number called, they left a voicemail. And I had just left the Hollywood Museum with my wife, and we were driving and uh, listening to my Spotify on my phone in the rental car stereo. So I played this guy's voicemail over the car stereo, and he says, Hey, uh, I'm calling because I've been a fan of your work for for years now, Uh, your records, and I was also a fan of the column that you used to write in Elemental Magazine. I really like your writing and your voice in your writing. And um, I have a publishing opportunity that I was hoping to discuss with you. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever given any thought to writing a book or if you have any interest in noir and crime fiction. But if you do, I would love to talk to you about um, an opportunity that I have and that I've been considering you for when you have time. And I, I, my wife and I were both just sitting there like ag- agape, like, what? <laughs> wow. And I called this guy back, and um, it turns out he's a manager at Mysterious Books in Soho, which is a very famous um, crime and war fiction bookstore. He said that he had followed my writing and my work from my records and my magazine columns, my blogs, what have you. And he uh, he said they're starting a new publishing imprint And they're going to be doing some archival material, books that are from that genre of crime noir fiction that were kind of beloved but forgotten, like old cult classics that are out of print. They're going to be reissuing some of them. And then they've got a couple of currently working and successful authors from that world who um, are just looking for a new home to publish another project. And so they're going to be doing a few of those. And then they wanted to do a couple of first timers. Wow. And he was like, you're on my short list of people I thought might make a good first timer. And so I was like, wow, I don't even know what to say, man. I I mean, no, I wasn't sitting around dreaming of writing a novel um, or more specifically a crime noir fiction novel. Yes, I do have an interest in it personally, probably more so from film than from literature um, but i can't say that i'm not interested in it so why don't we meet up when i come Mm. back and then i met up with him like i don't know maybe two or three weeks ago now and discussed it and it's looking increasingly likely that i might be taking a shot at writing a novel um, and i've got this opportunity to publish a book
0: dude that's so So, cool
1: yeah it's really wild (laughs) um and this all comes in a time when in my recovery i've You know, a lot of us, even those of us who don't have an addiction that they're in recovery for, just as a part of the human condition, find that there is a persistent negative broadcast happening somewhere in the back of your mind that says, I'm not good enough, and I'm not what I want to be or where I want to be, and I never will be. I like to think of mine as uh, a personalized version of InfoWars. The Alex Jones Show, and there's some fat asshole yelling inside me saying, you're not a real artist, you're not a real musician, you suck at piano, no one will take your singer-songwriter music seriously.
0: Unsubstantiated. Right. Garbage. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's just this negative broadcast being Mm. shouted in the background of all my thinking that says you can't do it, you're not a real artist. You know what? You're just a real estate agent now, as though there's something shameful about that. So- Sorry for you that you're a fucking loser and a nobody now. You're just a regular schmo. Uh, Well, fuck that voice (laughs) and and it's broadcast. And I think maybe this is just one of those universe higher power things trying to tell me you are an art person. And if you don't seek out and find the art, it will find you. Mm. And so I just said to myself, no, this was not a part of my plans. No, I have no experience in this format or in this particular medium of art per se, but I do trade in words. I always have, whether it's conversationally, as a real estate agent, as a rapper, as a writer of lyrics.
0: As a storyteller. As a
1: storyteller. Words, as my therapist has so (laughs) undelicately put it, are my superpower. Mm. And... Why shouldn't I be able to use them for this? So I said, sure. As long as this isn't a creepy situation or a fucked up one on paper, I'm going to say yes. I'm realizing in reading them that I have actually read a little bit of noir fiction. Mm. Uh, I read, in my Bukowski phase, Pulp, which is Mm, straight up and down a noir story. Uh, And then I just remembered that while I was on tour, I was on a world tour opening for Kill from Jurassic 5. In the middle of one of the worst binges of my drinking life, after my wife, who I'm now married to, left me mm. f- for like a year and a half, um, I was really sad, obviously. Mm. That was probably one of the darkest drinking periods of my life. I bought in a little vintage story, used copy of Irvine Welsh's novel, Filth, which is uh, one of his follow up works to Train Spotting. And that's a, a noir fiction book.
0: Mm.
1: so i i have actually had a, a little face-to-face time with that subgenre and so i just yeah. i just finished reading uh george pelicanos novel uh the guy who writes for who wrote for the wire and for treme and now writes for that new hbo show uh, the deuce oh yeah. yeah um he's also a fiction author who writes uh crime and noir stories so i just finished nick's trip uh Recently. Announced. Oh, it's
0: supposed to be awesome. I've heard a lot about that. There
1: were parts of the book that felt a little trite, hokey, and like macho male in a way that registers on me as corny. But watching him lay a story out and develop characters and exercise his literary muscle w- was impressive for sure. Uh, maybe just the subject matter or style didn't necessarily age well in the me too era
0: Mm, yeah uh
1: and so i i i definitely had a little bit of arm's length appreciation for it um but the the superstitious part of me wouldn't want to say anything super critical of it because i can't say that i'm capable of doing what he did with that work or that i will be um and i respect the shit out of that uh it wasn't really my cup of tea, but there was definitely something to be learned from it, and I, I do really admire George Pelicanos for his enormous body of work across mediums as a writer. It's so fucking cool. Uh, I only dream of being able to do that kind of thing. Um, the next trip, probably not really for me, although... the. There was a lot of stuff in it that I was like, Jesus, if I was a private eye, I would probably be like this guy. Or I would have when I was a drinker. (laughs) Maybe that's part of why I didn't just outright love it. (laughs) Close to home. Oh, yeah. It definitely held a little bit of a mirror up to my past behavior in terms of how I treated drink, sex, and violence. Um, But I'm currently reading uh, Ken Bruin, uh, The Guards. Uh, He's an Irish writer, and it really reminds me quite a lot of Irvine Welsh. Uh, I guess maybe that region of the world, Mm. uh, the United Kingdom, produces a certain style. Uh, It really works on me, boy. And the funny thing is, subject matter is not so different uh, and and the protagonist not so different. But I I guess I just find a little more humility in the style. Mm. It doesn't work out a lot for the main character of the guard so far. And he has a real sense of humor about it. Uh, Nick's trip is definitely a little bit more uh, baseline on the character's ability to reflect inwardly. He certainly does do that, and, and it has the capacity for it, but he, he's a lot more macho <laughs> than the protagonist of the guard.
0: Do you think that's a cultural thing? It could be a time
1: period thing, too. Yeah, it's it's yeah. 10 years older. He has a real sense of humility about what a shitbag he is, <laughs> the protagonist. Yeah. Um, there's a, a lot of recovery literature out there that hints at the idea that hu- humility and is something that we used to think of as like a, a humble pie, like a forced humble pie that mm-hmm. you didn't really want to partake of. But now in recovery, you see it as a necessary ingredient, a fuel, for your recovery.
0: A strength instead of a weakness. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's a crucial ingredient. If, if you don't have humility, you will not have recovery. Uh, so I, I value it now. And I, maybe that book is really hitting home for me. I've
0: been reading Noir, the book who censored Roger Rabbit, that Roger Rabbit's based on, right? As a genre, Eddie Valiant, the, the alcoholic detective, who then meets these cartoon characters who There's a scene in the movie where he he shoots the whiskey bottle because he has to go to Toontown to find Roger. And that's like I think about that a lot. It might sound like silly and like I really love that movie. But his superpower becomes being able to realize he's in this weird situation and he has to man up. It kind of makes me emotional talking about he has to man up. Go out there, find his friend. The only way he can do that is by not using the whiskey as a crutch. And I, ah, yeah. I love that scene.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it makes you emotional, I think, because you are also in recovery and you can relate to that moment of humility. Uh, it's often referred to as a moment of grace, where you had to face that this was a problem for you and, yeah. and then make another choice, a very difficult choice. Um, this is why they say it, it's so crucial that someone reaches a bottom before they get help because most of us are not going to voluntarily walk into a situation like that i certainly wasn't prepared to Mm. had i not been discovered for being an alcoholic drug addict sex addict i'd still be out there doing it i basically got caught and, Mm. and my wife was about to take everything that mattered most to me from me including herself and that was enough of a bottom for me. It was an emotional bottom. And I realized there's something wrong with you. Mm. That you've allowed things to go to this place. That you use these substances in this way. Drugs and alcohol and sex. It's it's a, an indication of a sickness I'm learning isn't just about my physical addiction to those things. But also... Just a huge God-sized hole, and the only thing you can plug a God hole with is God. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a religious person by any stretch. I, there, I have no denomination or anything like that. I have learned that if there is a higher power, it sure as shit isn't me. And the difference between how I live now and how I lived then is that I made it a mission to make a God of myself. I thought that I could control all outcomes and... The only ambition that I ever really exercised in pursuit of my music career or riches or fame was an attempt to reach a position of inscrutability. I didn't write to the best of my ability as a rapper or produce as much as possible as a real estate agent because I had some high-minded, responsible purpose. I wanted wealth and fame and success because I told myself if I was rich enough, if I was famous enough, no one could question me about my drinking, drugging, and fucking. Mm. My real goal was to make a god of myself.
0: Well, it's interesting that your when your first project was the demigods, right? And <laughs> <laughs> and that was like a a context for now you're you've grown well, and it's, yeah, you know I hadn't what I'm even saying? thought of that. That's really funny. <laughs> and it's like I definitely know what you're saying. And the way to yeah, both numb the world and control it is uh it's not sustainable and it's not humanizing.
1: How can you have a real relationship with anyone? Totally. When y- your real motives are about setting yourself above them so that you will never have to answer to them. That's crazy.
0: That, and that's plus added with the toxicity of like a lot of the fantasy of that era of rap or even maybe some, you know, the SoundCloud rap now of like celebrating that banal uh, dominance. You know what I'm saying? Over, yeah, of course. <laughs> that's yeah. problematic. And that's...
1: I mean, I wasn't capable of framing my behavior or my goals that way. Hmm back then. Sure. I never would have attempted any sort of inward examination of these ideas. That's painful stuff. Why would I subject myself to that intentionally? I think the only reason that ever happened is because I reached a proper emotional bottom and I realized I was about to lose all the things that mattered most to me. It's only then that you are really capable of doing, undertaking such a difficult emotional journey of actually looking inwardly and asking what the fuck is wrong with me Mm. what is my part in how i ended up in this place i would have done anything to avoid those questions
0: that's like what the fifth step right the moral inventory fourth and fifth yeah. yeah
1: for somebody who's out there still living that life you can't imagine that taking those steps doing that work would result in anything other than the death of the fun, adventurous you. But when I look back on the way I used to live, there really isn't anything more boring than the repetitious day-in-day-out grind of staying in fresh booze, drugs, and sex. So that really limited the kind of life experiences that I was having and the depth of my relationships. That's, definitionally speaking, boring. Right. I couldn't have known that then. Yeah. I've been to art museums. I've been to shows I never would have gone to. I've said yes to experiences I was completely shut off to in recovery. Those are the gifts of having achieved and maintained sobriety. And it's not boring. It's actually really exciting. And the the best part of it is when I do something now i'm there for it and i actually feel it good feelings and bad feelings and even minor stuff feels so dramatic to me now because i'm there for it yeah just having a healthy bout with my wife now the intensity of it and like just how real and upfront and full on it all is it's actually kind of overwhelming i'm like jesus i don't remember sex being such a graphic experience (laughs) and i think it's because i'm actually there for it so i mentioned this to suggest that you fear before you end up in recovery that your life is going to be muted Mm -hmm. that's the exact opposite of what i think happens at least in my experience for the first time in a long time The lights are on and your ears are unclogged Yeah, and you see clearly. So when you experience things, even minor things, man, do you experience them.
0: And you can really love someone too because you're, for me, being able to appreciate that person and know there's no games and know where my soul is at. You know what I mean? Like there's that spiritual level, whatever things that come into your life have a significance that's not just... I randomly, this is the person who was leaving the bar when I was. You know what I'm saying? Yeah,
1: no, that's definitely true. There's a lot more intent in what happens in my my emotional relationships now. Yeah. And uh, not so much of the circumstantial and impulsive. uh, And intent really does a lot for the development of intimacy, which is great. And uh, I I agree with you on that. I mean, my, my wife and I are closer now than we were before for sure um this is probably the best our relationship has ever been that's dope yeah it's, it's pretty <laughs> awesome yeah um but also it's it's scary because of that because i'm there for all of it and i feel everything even the feelings i don't want to feel feelings of fear and, and mm-hmm. disappointment and sadness um, i don't really have a way to dull those now i, I, get, I get to feel all my feelings feeling feelings is different and it's, it's a lot harder.
0: I think it's like the higher power stuff, like getting a voice message like, hey, do you want to write a book? Hey, this might be the next path if you want to create something. Like running to you and our places where we connect in Brooklyn has always been cool to me and knowing about yeah, your journey. Ditto. And it's dope that you were able to sit and talk with me. And like, I think things happen for a reason.
1: I, I agree with that. Totally. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know if I used to think that, but I, I think that now. Yeah. And, I mean, that's just a big part of making recovery work for you is trusting that there's a plan for you and that you will be cared for as long as you're making every effort to do the next right thing when possible. Uh, And you have to believe that if you're going to succeed in recovery and in doing so, I am generally finding real world examples of that unfolding right before my eyes and going, wow, man, how could I have been so wrong about this for so long? It's not always what I imagined, but it's usually... At least by way of averages, positive. Mm-hmm. I found that to be the case.
0: What's in store for me today? Higher power? Yeah. Show me what's on the menu. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. We're doing that today. <laughs> nice. It's a strength to acquiesce rather than a weakness. To go, sw- yeah. I like your metaphor, swimming with the river is like really a cool way to put it.
1: I, I get that stuff from all the people who've done this before me. I was actually kind of afraid when I met up with that guy, Tom, from Mysterious Books that Mm. when he found out that I was in recovery, it would be disappointing. Um, And I thought about what people who were fans of my old work would think if their drinking hero ended up in recovery. And I think that was silly of me to think that way. Um, If anybody who found that out about me was disappointed... I would think that that person maybe has some growing to do mm. instead of being happy for me. Yeah. You know, and they just don't know how positive this experience has been for my life. It's enhanced it greatly. And I think if there ever will be another Lewis Logic record, it can only be born out of that. So my recovery is actually good for the possibility of me making more rap records one day.
0: And that being sober is not a. Denigration of masculinity, which the culture likes to try to force on us.
1: I'm I'm going to tell this little story about that, and then I'll close the book on the recovery conversation. I have an older brother from whom I learned to party. He was my model for how it happens. We're very different kinds of guys. He's a macho former jock, bodybuilder, frat boy. Uh, He's a mega bro. Hardcore. Uh but we shared in common our love for as he puts it, our favorite drug. More. (laughs) And very well said. (laughs) So when I first got sober, he came to visit me and that was in my first month of recovery and man did he interrogate me Mm. so many questions so curious about why i was doing this and how i was doing it and what you're in therapy what your therapist is a woman don't you want to fuck her and i'm like jesus dude this is how i ended up in therapy to begin with no i'm not sitting there thinking about fucking my therapist fucking was a problem of mine yeah i'm in therapy to not have that problem anymore or at least to try to learn and understand a little better how i arrived in that place so I've always thought that he would benefit from what I'm going through. And I'd met up with him a few times, and he was really going through it. And uh, I didn't understand just how serious and bad things had gotten for him. And I made a visit to the city where he lives on my way to pick up a a piece of vintage furniture I had bought in another state to break the drive up, I spent a couple of nights with him and he was in bad shape. It scared me and I thought this guy is not going to see his kids grow up completely Mm, if this keeps up. Um, But I can't give someone what I have. They have to want it. They need to experience some sort of bottom that will take them to a place where they decide they want this. And I wouldn't say that I was sitting around praying for something terrible to happen to my own brother, Mm. but I was hoping that something would open his eyes to what was going on. And I got that text message one day from his wife and then we spoke on the phone and I realized instead of being worried or sad, this is the opportunity. This is the time that maybe he'll understand that he's going to have to have his big moment of clarity and learn from this. And he did that. Mm. And I watched my brother get sober, my older brother, my big brother. The guy who taught me how to party is learning how to recover from his little baby brother. He calls me almost daily now to talk about it. The full circleness of that moment, of that experience, of him calling me for the first time, crying, and being scared, really became apparent for me. Just how poisonous that macho male attitude is that makes you think that that's where masculinity lives. It lives in the place where you tell everyone, I've got it. I've got everything under control. No, I don't have feelings. Crying? I've never done that. I don't need to. Because I control everything, as is my responsibility as a man. Mm. That was driven home for me the day that my father and I talked about my brother's pending recovery and him going away for treatment. And he said, well, yeah, I know this is hard for him, but don't worry, your brother's a lot stronger than you are. You're really sensitive you know you cry and you like talk about your feelings and i asked my dad is that what you think it is to be strong to not say anything mm. about how you're really feeling wow man to not allow yourself to cry to not admit wrongdoing to not look for your part in the things that are going wrong in your life yeah that's what you think is strong <laughs> i guess it's no wonder that my brother had that
0: attitude wow what did he say when you said that? Did you verbalize that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: My dad's he's 78, man. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um and I don't want to get too political on here, but you okay. can probably guess how my dad feels about the current socio-political climate. Mm. He uh <laughs> he deflected and said, "Oh, don't start on me with all that shit." And I said, "All right." that's no, cool I, I don't want to force my ways on you uh, but i am a resource i'm a resource for you i'm a resource for my brother because i do trade in feelings and talking about them and being in honest words. and looking for yeah in yeah. words and yeah. looking for my part and i think there's medicine in those things so maybe you don't believe in that stuff maybe you don't want to be the one that he comes to for that but I'm here when that becomes necessary. And I have been a a largely daily part of my brother's recovery since. And it is very powerful hearing my big brother call me and tell me over and over again, there is no way I could have done this without you. I don't know how to thank you for what you did for me. Mm. Because I took those phone calls when he was afraid to go to a treatment facility to get help. And this tough guy, macho, former bodybuilder frat boy was crying and saying, I'm afraid while they were driving him to the airport so that he could go to a treatment facility. Mm. And I took the call when he first got out and said, this is so hard. I just feel everything and I just can't stop crying. And I was like, yeah, because you're feeling your feelings for the first time, Mm man. Yeah, It's hard as hell.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah. But
1: feeling your feelings is good. It's, it's a gift that you're able to do that. It's just right now you have to feel all the bad ones because all the records that you left behind. But eventually you will come to appreciate this because you're also going to get to feel the good ones right, for real
0: for the first time. Yeah. You're talking about love or... Romance or not doing the same freaking song. Shit, even
1: when one of his sports teams wins.
0: Yeah, right. He'll get to feel it for the
1: first time for real because he'll be there for it emotionally.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And be invested in every play and every yeah That's cool. That's cool, man. Those
1: things are happening for him. It's happening slowly because that's how recovery is, it's not a microwave process. It's a slow cook, slow roaster process. But that's
0: the best food, right?
1: Totally. And
0: now being an uncle, coming up and like all that, being able to be part of that. And just, it seems like, yeah, the timing of that, that's really amazing, man. Yeah. It's a great story. To wrap things up, I really appreciate all your time, man. Yeah, sure. Is there anything you want to say?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So I, I do still get messages very regularly from people and comments on my various social media outlets asking where i am and what happened to me and telling me that they really love my old stuff what Mm. i would say to all those people who were around for the height of my activity in my music career or who have listened to peter agostin's podcast what's what's it called again is it called the house list the house list yeah yeah, who have listened to the house list and, and heard a little bit about the story of what's going on with me in my life or who might hear this podcast is um i'm not gone I didn't go anywhere, I didn't retire, I'm never going to. I'm still making art. I will share my art with people. How things have turned out for me is not a sad ending to an otherwise adventurous and humorous story. It's just another turn in a journey that won't end until the day I just don't wake up one day. All this to say, I like that there is a world of possibility out there for me, and the fact that that remains the case means that there is a world of possibility for my connection with the people who've been kind enough to give me their attention, their appreciation, their unsolicited attacks at times, and the people who dropped F-bombs and tried to uh, hurt my feelings by implying that i would be gay that you gave me any of your time and thought that it was worth yours to reach out to me in any way says and means something to me even if you were just trying to hurt my feelings i don't know how that could hurt my feelings i don't think there's anything wrong with being gay and <laughs> i would not describe myself as straight anyway I- i'm definitely more of an other and the story of Lewis Dorley is still a work in progress.
0: It's a good way to end this on because it's kind of a cliffhanger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're very easy to find. Where, where, I am. Where do you prefer? Like if you were to give one or two.
1: I mean, if anybody wants to say anything to me, I'm on Facebook. There's a Lewis Logic Facebook, there's a Lewis Dorley Facebook. There is a Lewis Logic and a Lewis Dorley Twitter, although I don't use them. I think the social media platform that I'm on the most is probably Instagram, where I'm at Lewis Dorley. I don't post, but I do shop for tattoos there. And if you're weird enough, I think my phone number is still on Facebook or just very easily Googleable. I do not care at all that people call me and text me. I could block them if it really bothered me all that much. With that, I say, have at it. <laughs> okay, cool. It might be
0: another opportunity for another book. Who knows? <laughs> you,
1: you never know. It's all fodder as far as I'm concerned. That's the life of an artist.
0: I know this will be inspiring to people. And Thanks, man. So. I,
1: I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk. I actually really love doing podcasts. So all you podcasting weirdos out there, <laughs> uh, let that be a, a lesson to you. There, there are no no's on the other side of will you do my podcast lewis dorley aka lewis logic the answer is yes
0: <laughs> okay cool we'll continue to see what life has to offer
1: thanks man
2: peace lewis logic super regular recordings five g's platinum jj setting it off. Know that the predator draws more blood than an open wound against the leading competitors' guards. Leaving sores and bleeding jaws on a path. You should... Keep your eyes on Lewis slides and the drunken pies on Icon. Misconstruing optical illusions when booze in is bottle oozing. Love songs of us getting our drunk on. Tipping tequila till my tongue's warm. Then fall off the stage. Pass out while writing a rhyme and scroll off the page. Wake up in the rage with the shakes. Where's my love gone? I'm uncalm. A bottle of Jack at my lips, and a Guinness ivy in one arm. bad sale in the other. Makes a nice black and tan, but I still fail to recover. I hit step six. And my train of thought derailed from the others. Daydreaming of a damsel with grain, alcohol, wet lips. So for back fits for breakfast. I'll count it as the juice from that food group and mark it off the checklist. I truth like when they need Shorty, let me tell you about my only vice. You got the do with drinking peer. Born a beer kegs in college dorms and pops lick a cabinet. My drunken slur is like a British accent. Cause when I'm taking a flask, to my face till I lay in the grass And erase every trace of my past. I'm reborn a secret agent whose feet beat the pavement to the bar stool At a bar full of drunken drivers called the carpool. With a preacher at my right side, a cop on my left Double fist in a bottle of backs in a vodka and Schweppes. I spit a sad life story for Scotch and elect and not off in the middle. That's the possum effect. I'm still alive, though, even after this closed, I'm outside. Sharing sips of Cisco while I chill with a wino who suffers from bottle neglect. He need a pint of self-esteem plus a shot of respect. With such a delicate habit, it's a lot to protect. Because Lady Lex is like a landlord. She got to collect. Starting, <laughs> let me tell you about my only vice. You got to we'll drink a beer. Don't give me that. <laughs> and I can't think I must no I, I think take a hundred percent. No question. I take a get a Take a false swing. Take a false swing. Happy and thank God. The drunken dragons emerge from hibernation in a musty dungeon cavern with an unparalleled thirst that's unimagined. Swerve an old suburban with the front end crashed in. Signs of a hard night, previous, Started a devious bar fight and escape. With a six pack, a Miller Lite, and a cake. Draped over my shoulders with a mask tied in my face. I erased my own identity, and I'm not even speaking governmentally. First name, the surname, See from my memory, in a blackout. I was found my back out, naked, sad. It's like my friends were proposing, because they afraid to ask. Is Logic doing the same that made them late to class? pull is back in the China shop. I gotta break the glass after toasting. What I call, we raise the magic potion and a drunken addict's notion. That's devotion. Now that my bladder's soaking with metaphors in it, I retreat to my suite at the Betty Ford Clinic. Pass with forty, pass forty, pass it if you made pick, pick, pick. the the pass forty, pass it forty, pass, it 40, pass it if you're made. Boy,
0: cuz my not looking. Wow. <laughs> we went deep on that episode, and uh, that was raw. That was great. Thank you, Lewis. Be sure to check out his music. He's doing a lot of cool stuff. He plays shows still sometimes, and just a great dude. So uh thank you, Lewis. Uh, next week we have one of the nerdcore pioneers mc hawking what ken lawrence we talk about the origins of nerdcore we talk about how he and i went to perform for stephen hawking in spain yes true rest in peace stephen hawking and just his thoughts on where we've been everything where we're going and all that so tune in next week i hope y'all have a great week i am going down to arizona this weekend to make two music videos with mega rand so yeah, those are going to drop soon, and the first single from the album is dropping very soon. Stay tuned for that flavor. Thanks a lot for listening. Dropping the Infinite jest songs on Patreon, patreon.com slash Thank you all for listening. Lewis, thanks for being on the show. Peace.